Welcome to Aim Higher, a show designed to help us realize the leadership potential inside of all of us. I'm Skip Pritchard, CEO, author, blogger, student of success, and your host. So welcome to Aim Higher. Today we have someone who's brand new to leadership, brand new to corporate America, brand new author. He is new at everything. Actually not. He has been with Chick-fil-A for over 40 years. I think he joined at like restaurant number 75. There's thousands of them now. He's the vice president of high performance leadership at Chick-fil-A. He's an author of, I don't know how many books, 10 plus, I'm guessing. I've read a number of them. He has a brand new book out now called Smart Leadership for Simple Choices to Scale Your Impact. And I think he has like a million copies of all of his books out there. And so we are very glad to welcome Mark Miller to Aim Higher. Welcome, Mark. Well, Skip, thank you very much. I would affirm where you started with that introduction. I do try to bring a beginner's mindset to every day. So uh, that, that part is true, but I have been around the block several times. Well, you have. And of course, we'll get into all of your leadership philosophy and this new book soon. But I have to start with a chicken question. I'm sure you're inundated with them, but we previously interviewed Mitzi Pardue and of course, Frank Pardue and his chicken empire, but you're involved in a different chicken empire. You've seen it over decades. So our listeners really want to know, what is the secret ingredient in Chick-fil-A that makes you want to go back over and over. That makes the lines go wrap around the corner, no matter where you see one open. Are you going to disclose that to us today, Mark? Absolutely. I'll be delighted to. Are you ready? We're ready. Hospitality. Hospitality. Simple That's ingredient. That's the secret ingredient. We've got really good chicken, but we've got amazing people. Our restaurant operators uh, select amazing people to work in their restaurants. You know, I think it was Ben Franklin 100 years, well, 200 years ago, a long, long time ago, that said the handshake of the host affects the taste of the roast. We've focused on our food for decades, and we still do. I don't want to, I don't want to minimize that, but we decided about 15 years ago that we wanted to make hospitality our strategic competitive advantage. Truett had the idea. He said he wanted everybody, when someone says thank you, to say my pleasure, and that's where it started. And he said he wanted those words to be reflective of our heart. And we began to say, what else can we do to really create a culture of hospitality to complement the amazing food? And of course, you can only do that with amazing people. And it's been a virtuous cycle for us. And it seems so genuine when they say my pleasure. I know that you train it, but it, it is real. And I've noticed if somebody says to me in a different capacity, my pleasure, I look at them and I say, I think I know where you started your career. And generally speaking, most often they will tell me that I am right. It was at Chick-fil-A. So that has sort of spread. Before we get into anything else, though, tell me quickly one nugget that you've learned from decades of working at Chick-fil-A. I say nugget. No. I, 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 I saw what you did there with the, with the <laughs> nugget reference. We may get into this a little bit later. I think this work affirmed something that I thankfully learned over four decades ago, and that is that your capacity to grow determines your capacity to lead. Now, that may not sound like a revelation to you or your listeners, but for me, as a very, very young person, 
that was a big idea because I'm not naturally a learner by temperament or personality or strength finders. I think it's number 30 something on my strength finders. But somebody told me recently, they said, well, you act like a learner. And I said, well, thanks. I made a decision over 40 years ago because one of my very first supervisors, he said, let me tell you how the world works. He said, if you want more influence, if you want more opportunity, if you want to have a greater impact in the world, you have got to commit to lifelong learning. So you made a choice to be a learner. I made that choice. And my parents wish I'd have made it earlier because I was a lousy student. I just hadn't made that choice. But I said, if that's how the world works, then that's how I'm going to approach the world. And here we are over 40 years later. And I think that was a pivotal point for me. And it is actually reflected in this book because, as we'll get to in a moment, a lot of other leaders, particularly the best leaders, have made that same decision. They've made that same choice. And it changes everything. It really does. Learn to be a learner, personal development. I tell people, as Jim Rohn used to say, work harder on yourself than you do on your job. It makes everything change. And you can see that throughout all of your books, and in particular, this one. Well, what you label as quicksand, this mix of busyness, of complexity, of distraction, all of this awful stuff, this uh, soup, this quicksand soup that pulls us all in. When we find ourselves in this quicksand as leaders, what do we do? Okay. I want to answer that, but I want to pull back one half a step because the reason we did this book is that we saw a lot of leaders struggling. One thing that has been true for all the work I've done over the years is we try to speak to a current or emerging need. We're just not writing what I want to write. We're not writing what I think would be fun. We're not writing what I think would be easy. We're trying to say, what are current and emerging issues that we see in leaders. And we saw so many struggling. And immediately we went to quicksand. We, I mean, that, that's the label we use for all this stuff that you just described and more. And before I answer your question directly, once we began to identify busyness and complexity and all the distractions, we began to talk to leaders <clears throat> about those things. And I remember specifically a leader who said, I hear all that, but he said, I don't think those are my issues. And I said, well, what is holding you back? What is impeding your effectiveness? And it was kind of reflective moment. And he said, it might be fear. It might be fatigue. And so we started talking to leaders and we expanded that definition because maybe it is fear. Maybe it is fatigue. Maybe it is aimlessness. Maybe it's success or all this other stuff. So what we concluded is every leader has their own blend, and it's not always what you think it might be. But the question then is, what is limiting your impact? And we're putting it all in one bucket called quicksand. And how appropriate to call it that now, Mark, considering all that were going on. Did you have any idea when you wrote this? You can't, right? Because the publishing process would be right. We would started be long doing the research it. on this book three, four years ago. And so uh, the timing we think is perfect because sometimes those things that create quicksand are out of our control, the pandemic being a perfect example. Now, back to your question, which is a great question. Virtually every leader I've ever known, in fact, I don't know of one who hasn't at some point or another found themselves in quicksand. Now, they didn't go there on purpose, but they found themselves there. When you're in quicksand, you only have three options. The first is to swim in it. And that I think 
unfortunately, is what most leaders do because they're leaders. And when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And, you know, we know how to lead. So we just keep, you know, let's just power through this. The problem is it's not sustainable. It's exhausting. And you're never going to do your best work. And I see so many leaders, they're swimming in quicksand. We're going, that is not the answer. And Mark, I would add, there's sort of a superhero mentality that some leaders think you have to have, power through it. And there's also a reservoir. You see a lot of leaders who just have more energy, more strength, and they can sustain themselves doing that for a much longer time than many average people. And I think that probably leads into that first place you find yourself in. Where's the second place? you? Well, let me say this. They also, they confuse activity with accomplishment. Because you don't accomplish as much when you're in quicksand. And so you get confused on what even success looks like. The second thing you do, we don't, I don't see this as much, and I'm actually very thankful that I don't, is leaders just quit. They just give up. They die. Now, they may not physically die, but their hopes and their dreams and their aspirations are extinguished in the quicksand. And I think that's part of this great resignation that we see going on right now. There are leaders that are just saying, this is too hard. I want to pause on that, Mark. I'm interested in your thought on that with the great resignation. When I read the book, I thought of this very thing with the great resignation. I thought of it as two ways. You know, one is that leaders die and that things get beat out for them. And that's true. The other is some of them may have realized that they're in corporate America, they're in this, and it is being beat out of them. And they may resign to go actually out and start something new so that they're not in that. Do you see it that way as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't want to put all of the great resignation on this fact, but for many, I think they've just given up. Now, for them to move potentially to another job or another industry or another pursuit is actually their way of extricating themselves, which is the third option, right? You can swim in it, you can sink in it and give up, or you can get out, you can escape. And so as we started this book, it was interesting. We began our journey early on after these preliminary interviews. We said, okay, we know the villain. The villain is quicksand. And we really decided the villain is not the quicksand. It's real and it's serious, but we're the villain because we have choices that can allow us to escape and lead from the higher ground. And it's those choices that give us agency, they give us opportunity, and there's a measure of accountability with the fact that we actually can make some choices. So we shifted all of our research at that point to, okay, what are the choices that some leaders appear to make more often, more consistently, that allow them to escape? And that forms the backbone of the book. And you have, in smart leadership, four simple choices to scale your impact. And the first choice, of course, you say is to choose chicken over beef. No, bad joke. That's in the footnotes. That's in the footnotes. It's in the research somewhere documented. The first choice, I think of the Max Dupree quote, but the first choice is to define reality. And I'm curious about that one. I love the word reality, and I'm such a big believer in leaders confronting reality to start. And many people, particularly in the leadership self-development world, will say reality is a bad word. They will say it's all about positivity. They will say that the person saying that it's reality is just being negative. And so there's this balance. You know, of course, the leader doesn't want to be negative. You know, the leader wants to positively confront reality. So how does a leader best kind of confront reality, but also 
stay positive and kind of where do you see it in that spectrum? Well, I think there are other choices we'll get to in a moment. You don't have to stay where you are, but you do have to start there. And you're only going to lead from a position of strength if you're grounded in truth. You have sacrificed much of your power, your agency, and your leverage if you're not starting with what is reality. Again, good, bad, or indifferent, it's only a moment in time. I tell a story about my very first physical. Someone should have warned me. I had no idea what I was getting into. And it had been a very, very, very bad day. Quick version of a long story is I pretty much failed every single facet, including the hearing test. And I asked them for a note. And they said, why do you want a note? I said, so when my wife says I'm not listening, I can give her the note and say I have hearing loss. I mean, it was awful. And so at the end of that day, I had pretty much flunked my physical. But since then... I've run marathons, I've climbed mountains, I've done all kind of crazy things that you might think, how'd that old man do all that? Well, the value in that assessment was not the assessment. It was what you do with the information. I needed to confront that reality, and then I had choices to make. Because if I didn't have reality, I wouldn't even know what my legitimate choices and options were and would have never been able to do some of the things I've done personally. Again, you've got to start where you are, but you don't have to stay there. So anybody that says reality is negative, I think the leader would say, well, then let's see what we can do to change it. Not deny it, but let's see what we can do to change it. So good. If you're living in a fantasy world, everyone knows it. If your version of positivity is creating a fake world, all of your followers, quote unquote, they know And so you're only deluding yourself if you don't do that. So first choice is define reality. And I won't go through all of it, but there's so much in there that's so powerful. I just want to get a flyover of a couple of these. The second one is grow capacity. And I want to read this quote. You say, the best leaders are constantly looking for ways to increase their influence and impact. And I love that. And you personally push yourself to accelerate even when others are thinking about slowing down. I find that fascinating. How do you develop that grow capacity mindset? Well, I actually think it's a choice. I think that's why it's the second choice. If you don't choose to grow capacity, you won't do it. I mean, you won't drift to more capacity. Just like an individual and an organization won't drift to high performance, you will not drift as a leader to have more capacity. So, Your question was, how do you develop that? So there's a premise behind this book, and I probably should have said this in the beginning. I've written other books on telling and encouraging and coaching leaders on how to lead. This is not it. This is not it. This book assumes you're a leader. Think of it like a major league pitcher that can't hit the strike zone. I'm going to try to help you find the strike zone. This book is for leaders, and I want to make the assumption. I want to give leaders the benefit of the doubt that they want to learn, grow, create positive change in the world, that they want to have more influence, they want to have more impact, that's why we put it on the cover. If a leader doesn't want more impact, they shouldn't read this book. If the pitcher doesn't want to hit the strike zone, this is not your book. This is the third place in the quicksand. You're trying to get out. If you're in quicksand, you're trying to move yeah, yeah, forward. Yeah. This is but if you've chosen to people, sink, you're done. Yeah, this is only for the people that want to get out. And so I just have this belief that leaders who understand and embrace their role as a leader want to grow capacity. But it's still, you've got to consciously say you do, 
because it's not going to happen automatically. And that capacity is lurking in any number of places, and you've actually got to go there. You've got to go and look at the capacity of your team. You've got to look at your capacity of your own leadership. You've got to look at your physical health, energy, and vitality. You've got to look at your time. I mean, there are things you've got to go pursue if you're going to grow capacity. I love that. And I also love the start at quicksand because part of reality, even the first choice, you might have to realize that, wait a minute, I've been swimming in this. I've been powering through this. I might have been burning calories, but I'm not going anywhere. I see that's reality. I've made that choice to change. I'm going to grow capacity. A lot of tactics in that section, though. I even love the idea of the personal retreat. I know my friend Mike Hyatt always takes his retreats. It's such a powerful thing, not just your corporate retreats, which I think we're all a fan of, but that personal retreat. Talk a little bit about that. Well, one of the huge findings in our research, again, this might be a blinding flash of the obvious to most of your listeners, but we had new clarity on the role that margin plays in the lives of the most successful leaders. And we actually have been able to trace this throughout history. Uh, A lot of research came out of Harvard 30 years ago. And you go back a couple thousand years and find great leaders who intentionally built time into their calendars. We call it margin. Now, when I was sharing this with a leader not long ago, and this is a brand new book, but we've been talking about the content, obviously, with a lot of leaders, and I'll paraphrase, but they said, you've lost your mind. They said, I don't have time for a vacation. Now, remember, these are men and women in quicksand. And I said, well, hang on. I don't know if you need a vacation or not. That's not what I'm talking about. And they said, well, you said we need margin. I said, yeah, I want you to think of margin and approach margin as a leadership discipline. And here's how I want to define it for you. It is purposeful, scheduled time to reflect, to assess, to think, to create, and to plan. Reflect, assess, think, create, and plan. I said, when do you do that? And don't tell me you do it in the shower or in the car driving to work. I'm talking about deep, focused time and energy. One of the findings, back to the quicksand, if you work in an office, and some of us remember the days when we went to offices, You are interrupted on average every three minutes. The psychologists tell us that it takes, on average, 20 minutes to regain focus, clarity, and mental acuity that you had before the interruption. So you do the math. If you're interrupted every three minutes, you're going to go through an entire day never fully focused on the task at hand. And Mark, it's so true, and especially with the invasion of these devices, right? So we're bombarded round the clock, and we're always, it seems, trying to get back on track. Yeah, pre-pandemic, we were clicking, swiping, or liking 2,617 times a day on those devices, pre-pandemic. I don't even know what the numbers are now. So when we're talking about margin, and it may take the form of a retreat, but it may not. There are any number of ways to do it. I think what's important is that leaders have that dedicated time. And again, one of the questions that I think is legitimate is people say, well, how much do I need? I don't know. But I would say the bigger your goals, the bigger your challenges, the bigger your responsibilities, the bigger your dreams, the more you need. I know a guy, he became the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company, actually COO. He said the first thing he did was doubled his margin on his calendar. I knew I was going to need more time to reflect, to assess, to think, to create, and plan. I would just echo that as a CEO who's run billion dollar companies absolutely key. If you are stuck, when I would come into a new job, you assume the former leader's schedule for a period before you craft your own. 
And if that is so overloaded with meetings, I won't go into meetings, though there's great material in this book on meetings. But if you are so overloaded with being reactive, you have no proactive time to do exactly those things. And you've literally made a choice, I think, for mediocrity, really. Yeah. Well, you've chosen to stay in the quicksand. Let me just echo what we're saying back and forth. There's a recent study came out of Harvard. They looked at CEOs' calendars over 12 years, like pretty legit study. Michael Porter did it. And they found that the average CEO is spending 28% of a work week alone. I'm asking leaders, how much alone time are you spending? I think it's the most important and most valuable time of your week. But so here's my action item and challenge to the listeners. If you've never experimented with margin, schedule two hours next week. Put it on your calendar as a meeting. And when somebody asks you to do something else during that time, you look at your calendar and go, oh, I'm sorry, I'm already committed for that. When else are you available? And just try it. And again, somebody's going to say, what do I do? Reflect, assess, think, create, and plan. And they say, about what? About your biggest challenge, your biggest opportunity, about the near-term future, about the long-term vision, about how to get out of quicksand. Just pick something. Just pick something and give it dedicated time. And I think it'll revolutionize your leadership. So good, I think, and never more important than right now, for sure. Another choice, fuel curiosity. This quote from your book, our past success often prevents us from an even brighter future. I love that because most people don't think success can be a problem, but it can be a problem. And you cover that. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I was first introduced to that idea probably 30, 35 years ago by a guy named Larry Miller. Any relation? No, no relation. He went on to write a book, which I highly recommend, is called Barbarians to Bureaucrats. And here's the quick synopsis. At least there was a lot in that book. But here was my big takeaway as it relates to this. He took Toynbee's work, The Rise and Fall of 21 Civilizations, and mapped it with corporate rise and fall and found that there was almost perfect parallel. And one of the signs that Toynbee identified for the fall of a civilization was that when leaders began to apply yesterday's answers to today's questions, I think the same is true in in corporations. So that's why those past successes can become an impediment to a preferred future. Really smart. Your last choice is create change. You say create change today to create a better tomorrow. That's something you say in the book. But you also said this, you said leaders have a role of creating positive, strategic, and sustainable change. It's a role. Why is it that so many leaders know what needs to be done, but they don't make it happen? Well, again, I'm not a psychologist, and I have to remind myself of that often because I like to play one on TV, right, where I've got all these ideas about what's in people's head and what's in people's heart, and I try not to go there. I would ask leaders to ask themselves that question because It's not intended to be sequential. In fact, it's a virtuous cycle and you're going to be always making these choices all the time. But I say that the idea of confronting reality is first among equals. And this idea of creating change, it's where the rubber meets the road. If you make the first three choices and you don't make this choice, the others are irrelevant, right? Because it's not just a role. And I know it is a role and I say it's a role, but it's more than a role. It's the essence of of the responsibility and obligation of leadership to create change. And so why don't leaders do it? I think, again, there's fear, there's uncertainty, 
there's lack of role clarity. I think there's a managerial mindset that creeps in where a leader can falsely believe that their role is to control. It's not to control. It's to create and it's to release and it's to empower. I mean, we need management in organizations. We don't need managers leading organizations because they want to control and they want to bring order. We create chaos as leaders. We're trying to create something that doesn't exist, and then we need the managers to come clean it up, stabilize it, and get ready for us to create the next something. But if the senior leader has that managerial mindset, you're pretty much doomed. Oh, I love that. I love that as a quote, too. It does doom you. So this is a book, as you mentioned earlier, for leaders, for people who either see themselves in the quicksand and want to get out of it and change want to go to the bigger place, both for themselves and their organizations. How do leaders look at these choices and help to create a smart leadership culture all around them in their own teams of leaders? How do you replicate it? It starts with the leader. People always watch the leader. And if you're not a smart leader and attempting to make these choices your default, then you can pretty much bet no one else is going to do that. I did actually write a book several years ago about creating a leadership culture. And I won't get into all of that right now, but it really begins with defining what you want and need leaders to do and to be. And so I would say that includes character expectations, competency expectations, what are the skills and the fundamentals. And I think it includes the choices that you want those leaders to make. It begins with clarity. We want leaders with character, competence, who make the following choices and to be very, very clear. Now, again, there are some other steps in the process. That's another talk for another day. But I will say the last of those steps, and that is a sequential process, the five, six steps. But the last one is that existing leaders must model the way because more of leadership is caught than taught. And so I would encourage your listeners, it's great to aspire to a culture of leadership. That's a wonderful aspiration. You need to start with yourself. You need to start with yourself. Start with you, expand to your team and they'll be watching and things will happen. I think that's true. I want to just move into one last area outside of this book. And I've referenced some questions like that one that actually were hitting different themes of some of your past books deliberately, because I know the topics you've written. So I wrote a fable book called The Book of Mistakes, Nine Secrets to Creating a Successful Future. And you have always done fable books up until this one. Talk a little bit about that. Why the shift to this format and what you learned from the other format? I think that they have different audiences, appeals, and and people can learn in different ways, different modalities, et cetera. But I'm curious about your reflection now, having written I don't even know, Mark, how many. I was trying to count how many of the fable books you wrote first and then this one. What have you learned? What's your experience? What do you like better? What are people saying? I mean, everybody will always say we like this one the best when it comes out, right? So that I've seen many times. But I'm talking about your perspective. Wow, that is a fantastic question. I will try to hit a couple of highlights. I write books to serve leaders. I don't write books for myself. So that's my bias. Here's the struggle I had with the parables. And again, I have done, I think, nine of those. I understand that genre. I enjoy that. We do a lot of research. We spend a lot of money, a lot of rigor to figure out what's true. And then I would spin a tale and, and put it in a story. So, you know, chock full of uh, truth. 
But the publishers never let me put many tactics in the book. They would say, look, you'll destroy a fable with tactics. That ruins the story. Right. right. Yeah. So one of my early books, they made me take about 75% of the content out, the publisher. And they said, look, you're not writing a field guide. I said, a field guide? So we started writing field guides to support the fables. And they are just 150 pages of tactics. But nobody probably reads them. Nobody reads them. 99% of the people that bought the books don't buy the field guides. So the question I still get from leaders about those first books, and many of them are complimentary. I guess those are the only ones that are going to call me. But they would have all kind of questions like, how do I do this? And what's next? And what should I try here? They had tactical questions. They wanted to know, yes, but how? You introduced an idea. Yes, but how? So when the publisher said, I would like you to do, I have a new publisher, and they said, we'd like you to do a traditional book. And I reflected on that. And I said, one, I don't know how to do that. And they said, we think you can figure it out. And I said, does that mean I can include tactics? And they went, the more, the better. And so that's actually what I'm excited about. We've got eight chapters fully dedicated to what we call best practices, but they're full of tactics to support the choices. And so we'll see what the market says about that. But based on all the questions I've had over 20 years, I think leaders are going to like the fact that if they need help with a particular choice, there are a couple of chapters of tactics. So we'll see. I don't know if it's going to work or not. I've told everybody it was an experiment. And here we go. Each book to me is an experiment, isn't it? Well, yes, of sorts. But this is a whole different genre for me. But thanks for asking, because again, I wrote it to serve leaders, and that's my hope, and that's my prayer. And I love them both. And so I love the inclusion of the tactics, and this book is filled with them, It's in, and the graphic, et cetera, and the, the stories and the case studies. I love the other model as well, because it forces your own imagination, and it forces you to come up and develop some of those tactics as you read to ask those how questions. So equally thought-provoking, if you will, as leaders, if you've made that decision to grow, I think you can find that growth in both paths. So I encourage everybody to get all of your books. Well, here's the thought though. So as an author, you'll appreciate this. Now there's some conversation. Should we come back and do a parable around this content? Because as you said, the fable appeals in some cases to a different leadership audience. And it's not unprecedented. John Cotter wrote Leading Change, and then he came back, I don't know, five, six, seven years later and wrote Our Iceberg is Melting, but it was the same content. So there's actually been some early conversation, should there end up being a parable on smart leadership? And I said, well, let's see if anybody likes smart leadership first. Well, they do. I do. And I think what's interesting is this then is the field guide if you do end up writing that. So you've reversed the publishing process, but I think it may in some ways be harder to do this, some people think, but a good parable is equally hard if you really do story well. So Mark, thank you for taking the time. We literally just flew over, literally just the headlines, uh, brushes. So I encourage people to get the book and dig in and read because the concepts become fuller as you read the examples, the other tactics, the things that will resonate with you. And there's a wealth of information in this great book. So thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. And uh, thank you for helping everybody listening to Aim Higher. Thank you, Skip. Thanks for listening to Aim Higher with Skip Pritchard. Check out skippritchard.com for more episodes, interviews, book reviews, and leadership insights. Until next time, remember, don't settle for the mediocre, always aim higher.